This is Barry Knapp with Ironsides Macroeconomics. It's Monday morning, August 7th at uh, 7.15 a.m. Mountain Time. Our note this week was titled, The Real Bear Steepener. There were five sections to the note. The first one discussed the bear steepening we had in the Treasury curve. We had written about this a couple of weeks ago in an unstable equilibrium about different ways the curve could disinvert. And um, uh, this was one of those, or last week's move was one of those ways, uh, one of the more insidious ways we could get there. Um, and uh, one that often is associated with risk off shocks, which we had a mini version of last week. We then went on to discuss the sovereign downgrade and titled that section in defense of Fitch much hand-wringing as there was, Fitch made some good points, and so I'll come back to that in a few. We discussed uh, capital for labor and um, what looks like a pretty good capital spending boom for S&P 500 companies at least, if not the overall economy. Certainly that's true of the physical structures and manufacturing and tech uh, physical plant investment that's going on. We then discussed softer labor market demand as a wrap up to <clears throat> the um, labor market data we got last week. We'd written a preview that we released ahead of the employment report. And then, of course, we wanted to wrap up the employment report. And then um, a brief section on earnings season, which is effectively over. We do get a couple of more companies this week, and then we'll get the retailers in a couple of weeks' time. But for all intents and purposes, we've, we've seen the bulk of corporate earnings this quarter. So um, first on the real bear steepening, there's we talked about three different ways that the yield curve might disinvert. Um, a bull steepening, meaning uh, rates going down, led by the front end rates going down, which of course would require the Fed cutting rates. Now that can happen for two reasons. One's a little bit more insidious or negative than the other. That first one being that growth and earnings fell sharply. Of course, inflation would probably fall in that situation as well, but that would um, not be such a pleasant environment. That by definition is, is a recession, um, <clears throat> a real NBER declared recession. That is not just a GDI earnings recession as we've been asserting we've already had. The second would be the most benign scenario, which is disinflation and the Fed cutting rates because inflation normalized. The data last week supported that scenario, um, but uh, the bond market went on its own uh, way for different reasons. And then of course, there's the bear steepening led by real rates moving higher. And when that happens in a high velocity sort of a way, often associated with uh, Fed policy, that, um, that causes risk off shocks. So you can think back to 94 when the Fed started hiking rates, 2004, and then the series of Fed policy-related corrections we had last cycle, mostly related to large-scale asset purchase programs, the end of QE1 in 2010, QE2 in 2011, the taper tantrum in 13, um, the two shocks we got in 2018, which were led by real rates moving uh, sharply higher. Um, and then, of course, the mother of all of them in 2022, which uh, may have been just a policy normalization related correction or may have been related to the GDI earnings recession that we had. So um, there was both demand and supply factors at play. Um, 
demand has been weakening for treasuries as a consequence of the bank's um, problems with owning a lot of high quality treasury securities at the wrong price. Uh, we've also seen demand from our mercantilist trading partners that run big trade surpluses. <clears throat> there is no real rebound underway in trade, so they don't have the demand for treasuries to keep their currencies from appreciating that they did in prior decades. Um, and then there's uh, there's been some real changes in petrodollar recycling, which we discussed at length in the note. And then, of course, the catalyst for all this was the BOJ loosening yield curve control and um, getting people concerned that the country that owns the most U.S. fixed income assets across a broad range of different types of investors might wind up being a larger seller as well. They have been generally reducing their holdings at treasuries, though not so much this year over the last couple of years. Um, that could be a, a big risk. But of course, the, the, the ultimate catalyst for this was an increase in supply. When the Treasury announced they were going to borrow, uh, issue something like a little bit more than a trillion dollars in the third quarter, expectations had been $733 billion. Uh, the last time they released those numbers a quarter ago, and then they announced they were going to raise $820 billion in the Fourth quarter expectations had been something like 600 billion. So it's an extra $500 billion amongst friends. And that, that caused the back end to sell off. And um, uh, that was really the shock that um, gave us a little bit more of a, um, a risk off type of uh, atmosphere last week. The next section we described in defense of Fitch and um, the sovereign debt downgrade we really didn't have any problems with anything Fitch said other than we disagree with them that the debt ceiling and people like Jamie Dimon saying we should just do away with it. It's the only forcing mechanism we have in Washington right now. Otherwise, they just skip the whole appropriations spending process, jam all the discretionary spending for the year into an omnibus spending bill. It gets signed on Christmas Eve. No one knows what's in it. Multiple thousands of pages. And um, it's just not the right way to run a railroad. So we do agree, however, with their broader uh, issue with the CBO projections for the next 10 years that the government's going to spend 24 to 25% of GDP um, and run 6 to 7% budget deficits as far as the eyes can see. Fitch didn't say this, but we will. There's no way to plug that with additional revenues. Um, we've talked about Hauser's Law before, how Regardless of how we structure the income tax system, we're still getting 17 and a half, 18 percent of GDP in taxes. There's no way to close that gap by raising taxes. That's nonsensical. Government spending has to be reduced. And of course, ultimately, to get the debt to be sustainable, we'll have to reduce entitlement spending. But um, the real issue for us is not so much a debt crisis. We really don't think that's probable in the investable time horizon, meaning the next 18 months or so, and maybe even longer, much longer than that, our real issue is um, the inflationary implications of this. So we used it as an opportunity to go back and discuss the great inflation and what really caused it. Um, we introduced this fiscal theory of the price level and the professor that's been promoting this thesis um, going to be our, our next book that we go and read his, uh, his technical approach to um, the fiscal theory of the price level. Um, and we would finally note that there's been a couple of shocks. The first ones in our 39 years in, in the industry where big 
unexpected increases in supply. First, when the Democrats flipped the Georgia Senate seats on January 4th of 2021 through the passage of the American Recovery Plan, 1.9 trillion stimulus, expectations went from expecting no additional stimulus to all of a sudden getting 1.9. We had a real backup in real rates at the back end of the market, the 30-year part of the curve that the Fed has the least amount of control over. And um, sure enough, we're, that's leading the move again this go around because of this unexpected supply. So the U.S. does appear to be reaching its its fiscal limit, um, and it it's notable. Now, do we think this is enough to prompt new behavior or changes in attitude down in Washington? No, probably not. But um, we still don't think a debt crisis is the real risk here. We think it's um, uh, inflation is is the near term problem. So uh, moving on to our next section of the note, S&P 500 CapEx has been very strong. It's very robust across all sectors. Buybacks are going down. CapEx is going up. This is good news for productivity in the long run. Is it enough to offset this uh, deleterious policy? stuff we have going on, both from a monetary, fiscal, and regulatory, we'll see. Um, for now, it looks okay. Inflation is still coming down, but uh, obviously bears, bears watching, and that's what we'll be doing. Um, labor demand is clearly softening. So headline payroll gains were 187 with a negative revision of the prior two months of negative 49,000. That's 138 net of revisions. The previous month was a 209,000 Headline increase with a net revision of negative 100,000. Of course, there is the theory of revisions when they start turning negative. That tells you where momentum is going. But that's two months in a row, pretty close to the 100,000 or so speed limit for job creation. Growth has slowed from 3.3, total employment growth in 2022 down to 2.2. Of course, those numbers are overstated by problems with the birth death model that the business employment dynamics report last week underlined. Um, the work week is back down to its cycle low and last cycles low, last cycles low. So um, again, that's a sign that demand for labor is weakening. Now, the price matters and average hourly earnings have been stronger than expected the last two months. We still um, think that series is fraught with uh, compositional problems because the ECI and Atlanta Fed wage trackers coming down. And we do think wage growth is, is decelerating. We think the reason that it was strong was the great reallocation, which is an argument why we wouldn't worry too much about 4% wage growth. As uh, Austin Goolsby pointed out in an interview um, on Bloomberg TV, I think it was on Friday, <clears throat> if productivity is picking up and the labor productivity numbers last week were strong, now, They've been very distorted, so you have to take those with a little bit of a grain of salt. But we're absolutely convinced that when you get big labor market turnover, it's a near-term drag on productivity, but ultimately a positive for productivity, as opposed to wages going up because you're running out of bodies, uh, that's a negative for productivity. So we do think this 4% wage growth with 2% productivity is fine, and that's what we think we have is at least 2% productivity. That's where we were in 20. Uh, 18 and 19. Um, so we think the labor market's uh, com- you know, coming down, demand is, is weakening appropriately, and the Fed ought to be reasonably comfortable with that. So finally on earnings, looks like they'll come in negative 2% or so. That's not quite a complete reversal to um, uh, positive territory, but pretty close. And so the GDI earnings recession is 
ending, uh, we think. The recovery is being led by consumer discretionary. It's got the best surprise. It's got the best year-on-year growth rates. Margins are ticking back up. Revisions are still going higher. That's typically what you would see in a recovery. That is the leadingest of leading indicators. So um, does look like we're having a recovery, but we continue to worry about the financial sector. And um, the senior loan officer survey last week was nothing, uh, there was nothing positive about it. Um, you know, bank credit is still contracting and um, we need the curve to disinvert and we need it to disinvert in a fairly benign way. The, obviously the best way is that inflation continues to come down. That'll be the story at the end of this week. And uh, that'll be obviously a big topic in our weekly next week. So Barry Knapp, Ironsides Macro. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you.